Welcome to the Diversity Hygiene Academy podcast series. This is podcast number 11, and today we're going to be discussing best practices for cleaning and disinfection. My name is Van Walter, and I'll be hosting today's podcast. We have with us today Lorinda Becker. As a part of the Diversity Hygiene Academy, you will have some slides on the topic, a video recording, an audio recording, and a quick narrative. So there are many tools for you to access. Please feel free to sit back, listen, and learn. A podcast about cleaning? Diversity Hygiene Academy podcast series. Well, welcome today, Lorinda. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Van. I'm glad to be here. So, I mean, let's just get right into it. So, so thinking about this and putting this into context, where do I start in understanding best, best practices? That's a great question, Van. You know, if you look at kind of the evolution of cleaning in, in total and now cleaning and disinfection even more so than ever, um, what we found is like back in the 70s and 80s, you know, it, there were suggestions that maybe the environmental surface did play um, a role in contamination and also transmission of bugs and pathogens. And, and prior to that, and I still think a lot of times today, the focus was on shiny floors, a nice fresh smell of clean, sparkles, and hand hygiene. So what we found is that there has been a pretty big recent awareness in the environment's role in, in really spreading the germs and pathogens. Yeah, so I mean, looking at that shift from, you know, shiny floors and how things look, it's more perception, right? So, Absolutely. So now we're looking more at like uh, pathogens and, and bugs and germs. You know, so how, how long on average are some of these pathogens and bugs, how long can they live on surfaces? What we found and a lot of studies have shown is that, you know, things like the flu um, might live on a surface up to 24 hours. So it's going to be a pretty you know, I, I would say a very sensitive type of pathogen, whereas you get to things like if you've heard of C. diff, which is really prevalent in hospitals and long-term care facilities, that can live up to five months on a surface. Um, you've heard of the cruise ships getting norovirus, you know, anywhere from eight hours to seven days, again, depending on that environment, um, staph infections, things like that, seven days to seven months. So it's a pretty long process. And so the key is you kind of have to make sure that those surfaces get addressed. Yeah, that's, pr that's pretty crazy to consider that uh, pathogens can live up weeks up to months on surfaces. So help me understand how do the pathogens or these bugs, how do they transfer from the surfaces then potentially to human beings? That's a good question too, Van Moy. You're just full of them today, but <laughs> um, not full of it, by the way. <laughs> well, but thanks. anyway, as we look at pathogens, they're really shed into the environment. You know, we might touch a surface, we might sneeze on a surface, we can contaminate a surface in many different ways. And because we talked about how they can live, you know, days up to months um, on those surfaces, somebody else can come in and actually touch that surface, touch their face, their T-zone, as you may have heard in one of our other um, podcasts, that basically your eyes, your nose, your mouth, and, and what can happen is they can now start to get those. And, and what you'll find is that that can come through the hands of, say, a healthcare provider, a friend, somebody shaking hands, you name it. There's a very, very strong way that you can touch a surface and have it. So if you kind of think about it, you can even self-inoculate if, if, say, you were in a room, and I'm not saying it's you, but, you know, say you were in a room and you were to sneeze and that surface is now contaminated, I could touch that surface, touch my face, and I could be self-inoculated just by touching that surface. 
So I, I guess help help me understand something else then. So if there's such an importance on daily cleaning and getting these surfaces clean, what what are some of the the constraints or the the restraints that are are in place or that are hindering people from actually getting the daily cleaning done? I totally get it. You know, a lot of it is education of the people that are doing those jobs, but it's also knowing that they have a lot of time, um, you know, an allocated time to do what they need to get done on a daily basis. So you have to empty the trash, clean the room, make everything look good, check out everything, inspect the room. Um, and, and so the time is the biggest challenge that we run into, but also they don't want to bother people in the area. So if somebody is doing daytime cleaning, they may see you sitting at your desk and it's like, I'm not going to go bother him. So, you know, just making sure that we don't bother folks in the area. There's also a ton of things, you know, you think about an office, you think about a desk in a school, um, any kind of area, there's going to be clutter. Okay, there's flowers, there's personal items, there's your family photos, things like that. Oftentimes those things don't get cleaned around. Somebody could move it, somebody could touch it, and, and then they're going to get that transmission. So, um, and the last thing I'd throw out is that um, surfaces do need to stay wet when they do the job, so they might not just be doing the right job. So, Lorinda, what happens when some of these barriers are, are faced? Oh my gosh. Well, I kind of have my little names for these things, Van. Um, one thing I think about is trash and dash. You know, if I only have so much time, I want to prove I was in your office. So I'm going to make sure I empty your trash and then I might run away. Um, so, you know, thinking about that is if you only have so much time, do what's visible, which, you know, a lot of people don't think about the fact that those pathogens are invisible and very hard to get to. So we really have to think about those high-touch surfaces, the high-risk objects that aren't cleaned, and making sure that, you know, we try to do anything we can to increase the risk, um, you know, or, or I should say decrease the risk of pathogen transfer. So, you know, you know, I talked about contact time a little bit, but when people are in a hurry, they're not going to do a job, you know, well. Yeah, hey, that's, a, that's a really good point. I love the trash and dash analogy, and it kind of brings up, uh, another common thing we sometimes see in somebody's office or like an office environment, hey, if there's if there's lines on the floor like a vacuum was run, somebody was in there, right? So so kind of the same thing. So so I guess if you could let's let's start looking at how do we get to the best practices then, and what should be the approach? Sure, sure, Van, that's a good question, and I kind of break it down into four buckets. Um, the first is really looking at processes looking at the products and the methods by which you use those processes, and, and really making sure your staff is extremely trained. Like, what are we doing to give them the programs, materials, competency tests, competency checks, um, to make sure that they attain that knowledge. And then the last thing is some sort of validation program, just making sure that you know, did they do the job? So I know you emptied the trash, I know you vacuumed the floor because I see the lines, but what else can we be doing when it becomes you know, validation of environmental surface cleaning and disinfection. Right, right. That's a good point. So, I mean, wh where should you go from there? What should you assess? Well, the first thing you want to do is really look at that process development. You know, what are the current practices? You know, talk with the vendor and say, you know, what are your challenges and objectives? What are you finding with your staff? What areas aren't being cleaned? What are industry best practices? You know, when you're in a school versus an office environment, 
you're going to have different susceptibilities, you're going to have different surfaces, and just making sure that people know what those surfaces are. Take a look at the best practices and try to get to what that individual facility needs are, and then how do we really improve the productivity, okay, with some best practices, sustainability, okay, of those practices and also of the environment, and then satisfaction of the employees, the staff, the building owners, anybody that's related to that, and then overall safety of all of those same people. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. How about products? When when do they come and play, and what should be some of the considerations for, for product selection? Yeah, that's a good question, and, and it's really thinking through what are the right products and tools that you can bring into those processes. You, know, you don't want, you know, smaller people running a, you know, 450-pound auto scrubber if they're not capable of handling that, but it's really safe and effective products and tools into the cleaning processes to, to make sure we get those good outcomes. So understanding what the current cleaning methods are, how do we take those and improve results and operational efficiency? So it could be as simple as looking at, boy, do I have to, you know, run a diluter, put the product with the water, mix it into my bucket, test it to make sure it's the right, you know, concentration or parts per million PPM, as they call it. And then the last thing is now I've got to wring it out. Then I've got to, you know, find a place to use my, put my use cloths and I've got to go launder those. You might say, oh, that. That seems pretty easy. We do it every day, but at the end of the day, maybe there's a simpler process, having a pre-wetted wipe, having a pre-wetted situation where those those rags or cloths are already in a bucket ready to go. So looking at how do we get that operational efficiency and standardized practice. So you do it the same way every day, you know you're going to get better at it, just like running a marathon, although I don't do that too often. But, <laughs> well, I don't either. Uh, <laughs> well, that's good. We won't be running together. So, but also thinking through, you know, what are those high-risk areas that may benefit from additional technologies and then find that right comprehensive bundle. And, you know, your vendor can help you with that. You can see what industry practices, associations recommend. There's a lot of great resources out there for those. Yeah, speaking of resources, I mean, it seems like we're getting to the point of uh, discussing implementation. What what kind of tools or, or training materials might be good to adopt? Boy, that's a great question. Um, you know, it, it's all going to depend on your workforce. You know, a lot of us like to learn visually. I'm a visual person. It's a show-me thing. Um, some people like to read about it. Some people like to have kind of an outline or a video and then come in and try it. Okay, so aware of it then try it and then accept it as a practice. So thinking about those things, it's really what are the support tools that are gonna give you the proper workflow and procedures and then how do you best align those with your staff? Um, you know, one of the things that I found um, through my years is just there are some people that don't like to read. Some people like icons, pictures, visuals, things like that. And some people just plain don't know how to read or they may not understand, you know, the language by which you're doing the training. So. Mixing up those formats is really important and understanding what's going to make it happen. Bringing those procedures to life is really what's going to bring good, clean practices to life. Yeah, and, and uh, you bring up a good point about uh, varying the, the, the different training materials and, and tools. Does diversity offer any kind of customization to these tools? Oh, I'll tell you, um, you know, I, I think that's one of the things that I find is that if you can have a nice workflow, some people call them infographics, some call them process maps, but just something to kind of get you to how do you prepare, how do you get started, what do you need to do next, 
And then what's the kind of order that you want to go to and through to make sure that you do a thorough job? And I'll talk a little bit later about what some of those practices might be. Um, but it's really important to have, you know, a standard protocol that every single person does it the same way because what you'll find is your staff will tend to self-police and understand the best way to do it and really help each other improve. Yeah, you know, and, and I, I like the phrase, you've probably heard this before, inspect what you expect, right? So this is kind of putting down what you expect. Now, what, what can we do to inspect to make sure that this is being done? <laughs> well, I know that there are a lot of different um, ways that you can go through that. It's really understanding how do you measure what has been done to make sure that it's been done to your point. So um, inspect what you expect, as you would say. And, and there are programs out there. Um, some people will use like observation where they'll have, you know, a supervisor or somebody come and help and watch and make sure that the staff team members are, are really working to do a great job. Um, they also have, there are also some um, flexible um, marking tools that are out there like fluorescent markers um, with a flashlight that you can go mark the surfaces before and then come back later and see if that was removed. And, and what's nice about that is they become a really good learning tool to make sure that the team can really focus on how do we continuously improve. And, and I've actually been to a couple of facilities, you know, where they do, you know, they will celebrate success. If they get 90% or higher on their mark surfaces, um, they'll have a pizza party or something, you know, make sure your staff is motivated by it, not reprimanded by it. If you could. Break it down for me just a little bit here as far as what does the, what does the team really need to know? What are some key things to train our teams on? You bet. And, and, and really training is, you know, the biggest protocol. I think train the brain. We have to train our brain about a lot of different things. Um, working with the manufacturers I mentioned earlier and the cleaning team to identify, document, and implement those best practices. And it's not a snapshot in time. It's really a, a process to build upon, not an event of today. And, and how do we really think through what are those best practices? Um, it might change during different parts of the year when you have illnesses and things like that. Um, help the staff understand what are those areas. And I'll show you a couple examples or talk through a couple examples. Um, what is the order? Like, what does the workflow go? Because if you're bouncing back and forth on both sides of the room, trying to hit highs, lows, over-unders, and, you know, acrosses, what you're going to find is that that workflow is going to be disrupted. I think of there's a family circus program I, or a cartoon I saw one time where Billy was, you know, and you probably don't even know who this is, but he, he was his mom asked him to go get like a cup of sugar from the neighbor, and, and he proceeded to make about a 10-mile pass around the backyard, all the toys, all the different things, before he got to the next-door neighbor's door. And I think about that. Like, do we make, make it look like a busy, you know, freeway, or do we make it look very simple, succinct, and orderly? And I think that's what that workflow is really important. Um, it, it's also knowing which cleaners and disinfectants to use, and it's not just which ones to use, but on what. So making sure that we know what products are used on what surfaces, that they're compatible with those surfaces, and that you're really achieving what you're trying to achieve. If you're cleaning, you're disinfecting, you're shining up the floor, whatever that is. It's also important to educate the staff on what PPE is required. And there are, I know, a ton of tools out there. Not everybody puts the SDSs right there, but you know they'll have a standard protocol of what folks need to be wearing when they're cleaning a certain area. 
Um, I, I think about things like dosing and dispensing, you know, what concentration, how many do you use? You know, some things are manually dosed, um, some things are automatically, you know, ready to use. So it's just making sure you understand what those are and then what are the contact times that your products would use. How often do you change your cloths, your mop heads, things like that. But, you know, the real key thing that I find is that most of the staff team members really need to know how important and how critical their job is to the success mm -hmm. of the hygiene of the environment. Yeah, I love that last point. That that couldn't be more true. And uh, just hammering that home that they are important and what they do is important. Totally, totally agree. So what are some key tips to remember here? Um, key tips are really, you know, what are those surfaces? How often? What happens when there's a blood or body spill or body fluid spill of any sort or matter? Um, which ones you disinfect and how often might be things you want to know? Also, what are the manufacturer's proper use for using the products? You know, I talked about dilution, compatibility, storage, shelf life. Make sure you've got safe use and disposal of those products, especially when you're done with your clean at the end of the day. Um, and the other thing that I find is there are often a lot of orphaned products around the room that never get addressed is really having a protocol that addresses everything, like the walls, like the blinds, like the cubicle walls, window curtains. You know, things like that that we kind of take for granted as we might be cleaning around the room. And then just make sure that you know when to kind of change out your juice. If you're cleaning with a bucket of some kind of cleaner or disinfectant, how do you know to when, you know, to, to change it? If you're going to train somebody on disinfection, what are some things that you're, you're going to make sure that they know about disinfection? Well, in, in the world I'm used to, I, I have worked a lot in healthcare, and, and Van, what I've found is that, you know, really using an EPA-registered disinfectant, and it's not just using that disinfectant, but using a disinfectant that's going to be um, appropriate for what you might run into in your facility. So, for instance, if you're in a school, you might want to worry about, you know, colds and flu and maybe staph infection, especially in the wrestling mats and things like that. Um, athlete's foot in the locker room. So it's really understanding what are the surfaces that are going to be important and what might I find on those surfaces historically. There's a lot of resources out there. The other thing I'd say is that if the surface is soiled, okay, like germs are pretty invisible. So if it's soiled, you need to pre-clean. So make sure you get all the soil off the surface so you can truly disinfect the actual surface and make sure that that surface is wet for the contact time. So if it says it's a three-minute disinfectant, you need to make sure it's visibly wet for the full three minutes in order to make sure that you're killing everything on that surface. The other thing I think about, and this is one of my favorites, is don't double dip, okay? <laughs> and what do you mean by that? Not your potato chips and dip, man, but really thinking about placing that cleaning cloth back into the disinfectant after you wiped the surface. Don't double dip. Got it? Got it. <laughs> And then, and then the last thing I would say is that if you are cleaning floors, generally, especially if you're disinfecting, make sure you change it out every room or two or three, you know, in a healthcare environment. Maybe it's every one room. And then if you do have a blood and body fluid, um, any kind of body spill cleanup, make sure that you, you know, change the mop head out after that clean. 
Yeah, and I would say even with the with the uh, traditional cotton mop heads, I don't know how many times I see mop buckets out, out in the field where they look like chocolate milk and uh, they're they're not changing as frequently as they should. Might be might be time to look at a new uh, method for cleaning your floors too. Oh my goodness! And I'll <laughs> tell you, you know, it's funny you should mention that, but it, we we've seen a lot of studies where you know you're not actually, you know, even if your mop is clean, it may not really be clean. So you have to really think about, am I using a practice that is going to remove the dirt, the soil, the pathogen, or is it just going to move it to another place, which is kind of to your point, it gets a little bit gross sometimes. Right, right. So that's this kind of leads into my next question, which is what are some ideal, you know, we talked about ideal uh, practices for disinfection. How about for just general cleaning? Yeah, um, you know what, it kind of brings, I, I have three general rules of thumb um, and, and maybe a couple tidbits, but really you always want to start with kind of clean to dirty areas. If you start with those dirty areas, you might be recontaminating um, a clean area with a dirty tool, um, if that makes sense. So a lot of folks will clean, for instance, the restrooms last because they're going to be probably the most pathogenic or dirty, so to speak. Um, you also want to look at one direction. I talked about bebopping back and forth across the room. Is either flow in a nice clockwise or counterclockwise? It helps you kind of think about, am I going in the same direction? Am I missing any surfaces? And as you're doing that, really go high to low. So if you have any dirt or dust that's going to fall off the surface or anything like that, um, it, it's not going to happen to land on a surface you've already cleaned. So the last thing I'd say is disinfect last after other activities like emptying the trash, removing the visible soil, um, vacuuming, because, again, you're kind of kind of rattling some, some soils and things that might get into the air and, and really go back onto those surfaces. And then the last thing is my double-dipping thing. I, I have seen that so many times. Um, you know, I guess it brings another pet peeve where people spray and wipe, and they don't let that surface, you know, meet the dwell time. So you know, follow those best practices and you'll have a pretty good cleaning and disinfection hierarchy. Yeah. So bringing up disinfecting and disinfection, uh, last step, what, what are some key touch points to remember or to consider and, and to make sure that our, our teams are well aware of, Hey, you should be hitting these areas and what might be some good tools for them to use to help them remember these, these surfaces? You know, I, I think of like the hot zones, um, like red hot. If it's red hot, make sure it's pathogen not, okay? And as I think of that, as you look into just say, for instance, and I'll give you a few examples, is like a public area, reception area, a lobby, anything like that. You know, the people are gonna generally touch the doors. They might touch the waste receptacles, the reception counter, um, light switches, probably not, but somebody's going to be touching those during the day. Um, the water fountain in Wisconsin, we call them bubblers, okay? <laughs> um, telephones, things like that. So, you know, public areas like that. Same thing with the office areas, you know, the desktops, the conference rooms, copy rooms, break rooms, anywhere there will be multiple people that are around. Um, restrooms, I think you probably get. That one is probably the easiest, you know, the doors, the handles, the faucets, the toilets, um, the urinals, um, towel dispensers, tissue dispensers, things like that. So, so kind of, you know, as you're thinking about the rooms, really think through, you know, how many people do you think touch that a day? Should I be cleaning it once, maybe multiple times? If I go into a classroom, for instance, you know, everybody's going to touch their, their desk and their chair. 
Um, maybe the pencil sharpener is going to get a hit or two or five. Um, some of the, the chalkboards, dry erase boards, now they have some fancier boards out there. So thinking through some of those areas. And again, as you go into food service, very similar. Um, retail, again, you know, conveyor belts, things like that. I see so many pieces of produce crossing a conveyor belt in a grocery oh. store. I'm like, really? Can you clean that mm -hmm. before my lettuce hits it? You know, <laughs> Please. And, and the other thing I'd say is um, there, there have been a lot of studies about you know, that visual and, you know, a, a consumer, a patron, an employee, a staff member, whomever, when they feel their environment's clean, they're going to be way more productive and way more happy to return to your facility or your, you know, patronize your establishment. So it's just really key to think through some of those, um, you know, a lot of workout facilities. I've talked to a lot of folks on workout facilities and health clubs and fitness centers and things. And there's just tons of things you can think about, and you really just have to visualize how many people touch what surfaces each time and really focus on those, and you'll be you know, hitting that Pareto or the 80% rule. So that's good, just general practice for high touch points and disinfection, right? But, but are there any steps or precautions or, or things that you can do in your facility when illness levels seem to rise? Yeah, I'll tell you, you know, I think about cold and flu season. I think about, you know, some of the different, you know, epidemics or, or things, outbreaks that have happened. Um, and, and what I would say is that when you start to see that happen, especially cold and flu season in a school or what have you, is, you know, call out all stops. Um, make sure that you're increasing the frequency of disinfection to not just once a day, but maybe two or three or four times a day, depending on how many people pass through. Also make sure that you're doing that in addition to a daily cleaning and disinfection protocol. We also have found in some environments, and obviously, you know, maybe not in an elementary school or something, but there are opportunities to put disinfecting wipes and hand sanitizer stands, things like that, in common areas to encourage employees, staff, visitors, whatever, to make sure that they wipe those surfaces and clean their hands. I find that posters are fun, too, um, just to kind of give people that reminder. Um, I've even seen people putting, you know, some of their executives' eyeballs on their hand soap dispensers or sanitizers, <laughs> like Big Daddy's watching you all the time, because you know, at the end of the day, when kids aren't at school, when people aren't at work, productivity suffers. Um, I also would say is, you know, during those seasons, make sure that you stock up on extra supplies, um, especially the cleaning and disinfecting products. I know that they can run out quickly when, when those things happen. Yeah, some fantastic information here, Lorinda. And, and really, this if I look at this podcast that we've uh, just done and that you, the information you've shared with us, it's, it's really been uh, kind of a summary of best practices, like, like you've said, of a lot of the other podcasts we've done. So some some just really good information. If you could, though, break it down for us and summarize just things you want us to remember here and, and key takeaways. Absolutely, Van. Um, what I would say is, you know, one, you know, once you have those products, the tools, the equipment, um, you know, make sure that you take the time to clean properly. Give your staff the amount of time and the arsenal by which they can deliver the goods, which is really that safe and hygienic environment. So make sure that you take the time and give them the time to clean properly. So you assess it, you get those best practices, you enable your staff. 
The second thing I would say, or maybe third, is, is really look at what are the effective products, tools, and equipment to use. So, you know, we talked about you know, making sure that a surface stays wet if you're disinfecting it for the contact time. Well, if you get a 10-minute contact time, chances are, you know, we're not going to go back and re-clean, re-disinfect that surface. Um, make sure the right tools are available. And, and I spoke earlier about, you know, laundering practices. It's just make sure you have the right protocols, practices to ensure that healthy, hygienic environment and take out all the inefficiencies you can. And then, you know, similar to what you said, I kind of say, you know, in the compliance side, what is not measured is not considered important. And if it's important to you as a facility owner or um, somebody who's running a facility, then, then you should measure performance and make sure that folks are doing the job. Great recap. And Lorinda, we really appreciate your time today and sharing uh, some of your expertise. Well, thanks, Van. Thanks for having me. 